what should we eat? And more importantly, maybe, what should our food eat? These are some of the topics that we visit with Dr. Stefan Van Fleet as he breaks down the science behind the agricultural practices that we choose to support. Welcome to the Sowing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. I am so excited to, to be here with uh, Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, and um, man, I have just absolutely enjoyed uh, listening to all the, the podcasts you've done and the work you've done. Uh, so if you don't care, kind of how did you get into the field you're in? Uh, I get I get lost a little bit in the technical names of the different fields of study because you bring so many of them together, and uh, just uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is uh, Dr. Stefan van Vliet, and I'm an assistant professor at the Center for Human Nutrition Studies at Utah State University. Um, yeah, we're really blending a lot of clinical work with uh, food profiling. So getting after the question, do more sustainable agricultural practices result in healthier food? And does it also translate to healthier people? So it's, it's a combination between clinical research, uh, having people come in, eat food, draw their blood, collect their urine as well as uh, just studying a lot of, uh, of, of foods for their uh, yeah, nutritional composition. What kind of the, the term that stood out for me is uh, <laughs> the, the metabolites, so the metalomics. Metabolomics. Did, did I say that right? It, that, that seems like it might be an area that uh, is extremely important that we don't know anything about uh, in the grand scheme of things. So what, what is a metabolite and why, why is that important? So a metabolite is a, is a product of metabolism. So whether it be the metabolism of microbes in the soil or uh, the metabolism of a plant or an animal or a human. And um, a plant produces these metabolites, for instance, to protect itself from sunlight, maybe attract pollinators or attract some herbivores or deter others, uh, protect itself from drought. Now, these metabolites, uh, also called phytochemicals in the context of a plant, so plant chemicals, many of these can serve as antioxidants to us. So in the lay terms, if you buy a, a bottle of pomegranate juice and it says loaded with antioxidants, that's what uh, people are talking about, uh, phytochemicals, so polyphenols, flavonoids. And many of these appear to have antioxidant effects for us, anti-inflammatory effects. They can lower our risk of, of chronic disease with regular intake. And the same thing with, with animals, with, with cows or goats or sheep or chickens that, uh, that consume these forages uh, that are rich in these phytochemicals, it can also improve animal health and subsequently in, in, in turn, also what we believe at least the, the healthfulness of their meat and milk, because it incorporates many of these uh, uh, metabolites. So metabolomics is basically just a fancy word 
for, for the study of metabolites. And uh, it's the met metabolites found in plants and animals and humans. And in the case of plants and uh, non-human animals, many of these metabolites serve as nutrients. So not all uh, nutrients, uh, I should say, well, all uh, nutrients are also metabolites, but not all metabolites have nutritive value to us, if that, uh, if that makes sense. So, so that's, that's really what we're studying. So in, in the alternative cancer and cancer diets where, you know, you have the, the non-traditional right where it matters and then the conventional where it doesn't uh, matter, but I, where we have found uh, a lot of emphasis on is eat a highly rich with the phytonutrient diet in order to overcome cancer or to better have, you know, better outcomes with cancer. But with that narrative, it almost always has to do with plant-based diets. Whereas you bring in a angle perspective or awareness that says those same chemicals that were promoted, those phytonutrients, metabolites are also bioavailable in meat, but there, there is a little bit of nuance there. Can you, can you help me wrap my mind around all that? Yeah. So what happens typically when we found out what happens in the animal is, is that let's say you have a, a, a plant uh, metabolite, a sort of a parent compound, much like happens in our bodies. It happens in the animals too, is that the gut microbes, they metabolize these into different downstream uh, versions of that compound usually still has antioxidant effects, anti-inflammatory effects, and the liver does so as well. Um, so what we're seeing in the animal is, is that if the animal is consuming more of these phytochemicals, these metabolized versions of, of a parent compound uh, found in the plant, they uh, start to accu accumulate in the meat and milk. Now, uh, that, that is clearly what we're seeing. And <clears throat> what I do feel confident about saying is, is that this improves animal health, much like eating a phytochemically rich diet to us seems to approve our health or is at least associated with good health and in, in short-term studies would suggest that it has antioxidant anti-inflammatory effects so with that being said and what i think is unique about uh upcycling some of these products through animals is that we get some unique compounds in from forages that or plants that you and i cannot consume right uh various grasses forbs herbs uh that the animal consumes and further upcycles the phytochemical origins of our diet. So I do want to make it clear that plants direct for direct consumption are the primary source of phytochemicals in our diet. But by consuming perhaps meat and milk and eggs from animals grazing on these phytochemically rich pastures, we get an additional array of compounds in maybe slightly different forms and as well as a series of unique compounds to further increase the phytochemical riches of our diet. <laughs> What what I found very fascinating is the bison uh, research that you were involved in with the the Turner Ranch, and so we we worked uh, with with Force of Nature and who sources a lot of the the meat from Turner Ranch. But there is this spectrum with what they do, um, and I want I want you to help me understand that. But breaking down from what we have, what would be a feedlots type system. And then into a where where I really want you to break down the feedlot system they're doing versus grass fed and having this spectrum because I think that we get a lot of uh, locked into a term and not realizing there's such a wide variation in degrees of what that means. So can you tell me about that study and what they're doing and what what makes it 
different than quote unquote feedlot? So we worked with the Turner Ranches and we actually have an ongoing collaboration. So there'll be a bigger study coming out probably in 2025. Um, but in this initial study that we published earlier in 2023, we compared uh, the Turner setup. So the Turners have been moving slowly towards uh, having more of their animals being finished on pasture, which is what we think of as bison uh, uh Perhaps should, right? If you tell people that bison are being finished in feedlots, people are like, what? Bison are being finished in feedlots, right? So, but they are about, uh, uh, probably the majority is in the, in the industry. But what the Turners is, what is unique about the Turners feedlot is, is that, uh, and it also has to do with years of experience from then that bison don't do well in tight confinement, like, like uh, uh, cows would. So they have about four times more space than uh, your average feedlot. And what the Turners also noticed that, you know, normally cows are fed a, a total mixed ration. So this is basically uh, some grains, some hay, uh, some other byproducts formulated. But every cow gets the same amount. Every animal gets the same amount. What the Turners did was they have a free choice access where they can select from corn. They can select from meadow hay and alfalfa hay. So the animal can regulate intake. And what they have found is it's actually more efficient because uh, animals tend to overeat to get the nutrients that they need, right? So what's typically found in a free choice access is, is that overall feed intake can, uh, can be lower uh, because it's not fed as a, as a mixed ration, but rather in a free choice arrangement. So they have more space, they have more diversity to choose from, uh, probably promotes natural behavior a little bit more. Um, so we compare that to their pasture system. And while the pasture system resulted in what I would say an overall healthier animal and more nutrient dense meat. And here it's important to note is that the, the animal health and nutrient density is the same, right? The, the bison is consuming it, these phytochemically rich grasses for their own health, of course, but many of these, these compounds can have nutritive value to us as well. So we, we can benefit from that. Um, if you look at uh, feedlots in general, and even in the bison industry, typically the animals are also in fairly tight confinement on, on a total mixed ration uh, as well. So that, that is more common. So I would say, I always jokingly say that the uh, Turner ranches have an artisanal feedlot because if you see it on the spectrum, you have grass fed, then you have sort of the, the Turner feedlot, which is more space free choice access, and then you have sort of a traditional feedlot with tighter confinement and, uh, and, and less choice. So what we found was typically, and, and we don't have uh, at the moment in this study, we didn't have like a true feedlot control, which we will in the next study. Um, but drawing from our beef data, it did seem that the feedlot bison from the Turners, yeah, it kind of fell in the middle between a traditional feedlot and, and, and pasture finished. So feedlot be, or feedlot meat isn't feedlot meat is what we found. But even amongst grass fat, we find this tremendous variation, sometimes a tenfold variation in, uh, in, in the phytochemical richness of their meat, uh, of, of just farms in general or ranch in general. And we think that has to do or what we're seeing is, is that animals that are rotationally grazed on these plant diverse landscapes and are not overgrazing the pastures are well managed those end up being the most nutritious meat. Sort of the continuously grazed pastures where animals are maybe not moved around and there's, you know, put on, on, on pasture and, and not really actively managed and they might overgraze or, or you know, select some plants. 
whereas leaving others behind. So you create more of a risk of, of a less diverse pasture, more of a monoculture. We see that that meat is not as phytochemically rich and then, uh, yeah, and falls intermediate between the, the, the feedlot uh, beef and then sort of the, what we think of regenerative pasture raised meat. So the more diverse the forage, the more phytochemicals that are found in, in the, the meat. That's right. It, kind of picture it like this. As we go up to a buffet and there is 40 or 50 foods that we can select from, we're probably better able to nourish ourselves and provide us with a wider variety of nutrients, uh, as opposed to that there's maybe <clears throat> five foods that we can select from. It's not that different for uh, uh, animals other than ourselves. Do metabolites work as uh, cofactors for, say, minerals or vitamins? Uh, is is that a important role for for some of them? Uh, yeah, they can work as cofactors in metabolism. Yes, that's right. And this is how vitamins and minerals work as well. And you know, sort of the uh, many of if you look, for instance, at vitamin A or vitamin E, they're also considered antioxidants, and you could also consider them. Vitamin E, uh, a uh, um, carotenoid, which would be what you would consider also phytochemical. Um, and there's many different carotenoids, um, but vitamins there are essential. Um, the other phytochemicals are not essential, but that does not mean they're not important to our health. Because while we don't get a full-blown deficiency, or you know, if we, if, let's say, if we don't consume enough vitamin C, we get scurvy. If you never consume a polyphenol. You don't get a deficiency disease, but you are likely increasing your risk of metabolic diseases such as uh, diabetes, uh, cancer, uh, heart disease, insulin resistance. So we know that they work on, on the cells of our body. And, you know, proving this beyond reasonable doubt in, in humans is hard. But if you throw a mixture of phytochemicals on a cancer cell line, you typically see uh, reduced uh, cancer proliferation. So that's why we believe that these compounds could have potential anti-cancer effects. Or so if you put them on a pancreatic beta cell or, or a muscle cell, you can see improvements in, in, in insulin metabolism. So that's why we believe that these are probably actively impacting our, our metabolism. But that being said, it is a fairly young field. So in terms of like doses or amounts that you need to get, we're not 100% sure. There, there has been the first ever recommendation uh, recently, official guideline that suggested that, and I knew by head, I think it was 300 milligrams per day of flavonoids, which is a, a class of phytochemicals uh, found in, in many fruits and vegetables, um, that 300 milligrams per day can lower our risk of cardiovascular disease. Really, really cool. Um, do you think that any of these compounds act as like photoreceptors to where that plays into the the whole aspect of metabolism and it in, incorporates light? And it, kind of the reason that I'm I'm curious on that is the whole uh, deuterium aspect of everything. Uh, and and going back to what you know, Dr. Laszlo Boris has said, I, I I'm keep going back to that as you talk about the comparison of phytochemicals based on feedlot versus grass-fed grass-finished and i'm have you 
Have you tied in any of the, the photo receptor aspects or deuterium to any of this with the metabolism and the, the No, I, it, it's something that people have brought up to me a few times, but I must admit we have not done uh, any research linking those uh, uh, two together. So I'm not uh, 100% sure at the moment whether there's, uh, yeah, whether there's a plausible link there. Um, I'm also not aware of much research that has looked at um, linking that, that to phytochemicals. So, um, but it is certainly an interesting uh, hypothesis. And, and, and uh, yeah, I agree, something that uh, uh, could be worthwhile investigating in the future. Lord, you would, you definitely know way more and understand that than I would. Uh, I just keep seeing some of these things that seem to intersect for, you know, an old country boy that you just say, wow, that just kind of, that puzzle piece fits there. And, and so I, I'm really, really interested because if you look at like what Dr. Chris Kenobi saying with uh, vegetable oils in the diet and ancestrally speaking, it overlaps so beautifully with what Dr. Boros says. Uh, it's a high deuterium containing food. And so I, do you know if there has been any study whatsoever on the metabolism of livestock based off of those different types of, of feed? Um, I don't know if that's a good question. Yeah. You mean like if it contains deuterium, the feed? Um, yeah, no, at the moment, I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at that uh, at, at specifically and how that impacts the metabolism of, of the livestock. I mean, it could be part of, of course, a bigger, um, uh, yeah, you know, a bigger overall picture, right? Because it's usually sort of a puzzle, right? And maybe the phytochemicals yeah. are a piece of that, the deuterium are a piece of that. Obviously, what we do know, what we haven't talked about is, and this is also very clear, is the fatty acid profile of livestock that are in feedlots versus uh, uh, on pasture. We see that there's a lot more uh, the, the omega-6 omega linoleic acid uh, in the uh, meat and the milk. So the omega-6 to 3 ratio of feedlot meat in beef is typically about 10 to one, eight to one. And in grass fed, you get sort of this quote, close to this quote unquote, holy grail of one to one, where the amount of omega threes and the omega sixes are the same. And what we're seeing is, is that um, particularly the lack of omega threes in feedlot rations, it is, is what's limiting the amount of omega threes in the meat. Um, so this is another thing that we're, we're clearly seeing. Uh, and, and what is also interesting is that, you know, a lot of people underestimate, I think, the contribution that animal source foods, I should say terrestrial animal source foods, so meat, milk, and eggs can make to our overall omega-3 intake. Because it can make a meaningful contribution. Of course, salmon is 10, 20 times higher in omega-3s. But we also have to be realistic how within the population and practically speaking, how often do people eat salmon versus how often do they consume uh, meat, milk or eggs? Probably more often. So, and this is what it is, right? It's like stacking blocks on top of each other. So even though your ribeye provides you maybe with only 30 milligrams of uh, omega-3 fatty acids and a piece of salmon provides you with 500 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids, it can still contribute meaningfully if you eat beef four times a, a week and salmon maybe once a week or, or every other week or something like that, right? So this is also just thinking about it from a, from a, stand, a realistic standpoint. So, so yeah, that could also certainly be a, uh, be a part of it. That's something that's never really made 
you know, sense to me that the the whole world should be eating salmon to get our omega threes. It, it's been it's been something that just if you look, you know, where salmon are, and then the rest of the world, it's a it's a minute aspect. It's so we have to ancestrally get it somewhere. And so you're saying that we have good sources, depending on how the animals were raised and lived uh, with, with egg, dairy, and meat. Yeah, and and. and- Speaking of the ancestral part, I mean, it is likely that uh, we had a combination of fish and, and, and meat in the past. Even landlocked population, we'd have, now our rivers are pretty empty, but presumably they were not back in the, uh, back in the day, maybe in the U.S. continent 8,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, right? It's probably pretty bountiful. But we've also, there's clear evidence that we've hunted animals, wild animals during that, those times as well, always. Um, and it is also likely that we consume the organs and the organs are particularly rich also in omega-3 fatty acids. If you, for instance, look at liver, um, four ounces of liver, particularly grass fed, can provide a uh, hundred milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids, which is similar to, for instance, whitefish. Um, the heart is also fairly rich in omega-3s. The brain is particularly rich of animals. We don't consume brains anymore, but it is likely that when we use sort of a whole uh, no satil approach or a whole animal approach that we, uh, from, from uh, uh, land animals, still got a good amount of omega-3s in. And it is likely that also we got it from other sources as well, probably maybe some uh, freshwater fish and things such as that. Uh, but it is clear that we were also... We must have gotten it from somewhere. Um, and, and our DHA, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, is one of the richest fatty acids in our brain. Um, and, and oftentimes considered part of the reason why uh, humans have undergone this, this, this uh, evolution and, and became a very uh, smart animal over time. Um, it probably has other factors uh, related to that too, but certainly that that plays a part of it as well. So yeah, I do believe that, especially when you consume organ meats as well, uh, the omega-3 fatty acids can make a meaningful contribution. And, and that is clear. And, and uh, just from various modeling studies in, in populations uh, such as uh, Australian populations and Irish populations that consume more meat for pasture-based systems. And there's also some randomized controlled trials. It's about probably a dozen or so that suggest that people that consume omega-3 enriched meats, uh, amongst others, pastured meats, so grass-fed beef or kangaroo in Australia, you see that the omega-3 levels in the blood of people start to rise after about six to eight weeks. Uh, when you compare this to sort of a baseline of, of feedlot intake, you see no increase in omega-3. So it is clear that we can move the needle on, on blood omega-3 levels and that, you know, I'm not saying that uh, one shouldn't consume salmon or fish. I think one should. But it is also clear is that meat can make a meaningful contribution and eggs as well to uh, the overall omega-3s in our blood when we consume this from pastured animals. Too, too cool. Uh, so vitamin D and the cancer correlation um, are, are there. So like, you know, adequate levels of vitamin D lowers the, the risk of, of cancer the, or overcoming cancer. And so that is something that I've thought about with with you and where where you're from. So the Netherlands being in there and so vitamin D, I think the omegas play into to all of this. What, what I'm asking you, yeah. if we are at these northern latitudes where we have limited light limited sunlight how 
can a population that's known to be very strong, right, uh, have the adequate vitamin D levels if we're not exposed to the sun? And and I think that this all ties in yeah, with that. The dietary that sources, I think. I think it's from dietary sources. I mean, just think of something like, and well, being from the Netherlands, we eat a lot of fatty fish. Uh, vitamin D is fat soluble vitamin, and fish, amongst others, seems to accumulate this quite a bit. So, let's say if you eat uh, uh, herring, it's very popular in the Netherlands. It's a it's a cold water fish. It's a sort of our equivalent of uh, of salmon. Um, it's a fatty fish. Uh, it also provides good amounts of vitamin D. Uh, even cod liver oil provides vitamin D, which is something that uh, probably historically was consumed as well. Um, so these were probably dietary sources. And the, the same thing with animals. When animals are outside as well, uh, getting adequate sunlight, and as well, uh, especially in the case of poultry, there's probably a little bit higher amounts of vitamin D. And, what, and here's the interesting part about vitamin D. There have been some studies to suggest that um, because vitamin D, it has various versions of vitamin D and, and some need to undergo uh, uh, metabolism in, in, in our kidneys and in our liver. But when the animal kind of already, quote unquote, pre-processes this for us, it seems to be that it's a little bit more bioavailable. So there have been some studies to suggest that um, the metabolized version of, of vitamin D, uh, if it's a hydroxylated version, if you consume it in that form, that this is actually more bioavailable, five times more bioavailable than simply getting it from a, 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 a pill where it typically doesn't contain that, that metabolized version. So, so this comes back to the fact that sort of if we tie it in with the phytochemicals too, and we don't notice about the phytochemicals, but could there be a benefit by consuming sort of these pre-metabolized versions of these compounds, such as vitamin D, and how does that impact our bioavailability? Because in vitamin D, we can see, if we get vitamin D from eggs, uh, from uh, maybe fish, and we get this pre-metabolized version that we actually see that the, um, the bioavailability in our bodies are higher. So analogous to that, where, where sort of our mind is, is that, well, if we get, for instance, let's say, Benzoic acid, a major plant phytochemical. What if we get two six dihydroxybenzoic acid or four hydroxybenzoic acid? These metabolized versions. So we already sort of think about it as being pre-processed. How does that impact the bioavailability to us? So, because we know in vitamin D, getting these pre-metabolized versions can further has a benefit in improving our um, vitamin D level. So they improve more than what you think they would. <laughs> based on just looking at, at, at the amounts of, uh, of vitamin D because it's based on supplement studies. So, so I, I, what I, this is basically me saying, uh, uh, coming to the conclusion that getting these compounds from whole food sources is absolutely, when possible, preferred over uh, supplements. Because within the whole food source, you get some metabolized versions and you're likely getting a whole bunch of cofactors that can help with the digestion absorption as well. And here's where it becomes tricky is because I think we've maybe mapped out one to 5% of uh, the chemical complexity of whole food sources. Wow. Yeah, so we 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 don't know a whole lot then. then no, no, and this is why I always I'm a little, always a little bit concerned when we think that we can take a complex food source and we understand a hundred or maybe five hundred nutrients in this, and then we think, well, we can just recreate that by throwing these 
uh, a few supplements together or, you know, throwing a few of these compounds together in a growth media and grow it in a lab because foods are so, so incredibly complex. Um, it is estimated that there may be 100,000, 200,000, 500,000 phytochemicals. No one really knows how many of these there are. These are some estimates. But, um, yeah, I, I don't ex rule it out that in, in our diet, we are exposed to maybe, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of phytochemicals on, uh, over, uh, over a lifetime. So um, I think that's, that's so key uh, to note. As you were going through all that, I keep thinking back to some things that others have said, like uh, Morley Robbins with the copper enzymes and how that that affects basically everything. Uh, and then Dr. Snev talking about the glyphosate uh, in, uh, impacting, uh, well, everything. Um, but she she brought up the importance of, say, just sulfur right in the in, in vitamin D. Uh, and so if if we know that tiny bit in that the, the lack of sulfur will completely derail the whole vitamin D production th there's no telling what we don't know yeah no i agree i agree i i the more research we do it the more we get into this the more i realize always it's like sounds sounds corny but it is true it's like the more uh, knowledge you gain or the more you start to learn about something the more you realize that we really don't know anything uh, or, or know very little, right? And I think that's been sort of a theme in our research is that, uh, yeah, the deeper we get into it, uh, the more I, I feel humbled uh, thinking like, hmm, really don't know a lot about uh, what is in food and how that interacts with our bodies. But what we do know sort of on a, on a basic level is, is that getting these compounds from whole foods does, we don't fully understand why, but getting these compounds from whole foods seem to be better for our metabolism than getting these from supplemental forms. And the likely hypothesis is, is because um, when you get copper from a food source, there's probably a whole bunch of other cofactors in there that can help with uh, 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 the absorption, with the metabolism. So we get these sort of, think of it as a team, right? So if you have uh, a star player on your team being copper, um, if you only had that star player, let's say you have a basketball team of five players and you only uh, had your star player on the field, your star player probably gets destroyed, right? He needs the support from, from, from his teammates. And I think that is what we're seeing too with, with these nutrients as well, that they work well when there's a whole support team from it with, with other cofactors, other nutrients that interact with that sort of star nutrient that we think of as copper or, or vitamin D or, or whatever super nutrients uh, name people want to label on some of these things. I love that analogy and it, it makes so, so much sense and it, it's simple enough that I think anybody can understand that. So the, the name of the game would be how do we get the highest degree in there and have healthy animals? Cause is it safe to say, uh, eating sick animals is not going to be as good as eating a healthy animal. Uh, that is a likely hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. There, the, the thing though is I say this as sort of politically or, or it's because there had just haven't been a lot of studies done in that area. That's sort of the thing. So what I feel very comfortable in saying is, is that an animal raised on pasture looks metabolically healthier than an animal raised in a feedlot. What we don't know yet is does this have an appreciable health effect uh, on, on us as the consumer? 
while, while this, you know, may sounds like a plausible hypothesis, there's just not a lot of research uh, to suggest that. There's only a handful of studies that have been done. One, one study that people always refer back to is, is a kangaroo study that was done in, uh, I think it was 2011. What the researchers did there, this was only a single meal. They fed uh, Australians kangaroo or they fed it wagyu meat. And wagyu, right, is, is raised in a feedlot of maybe 300 days uh, or so. So it's in the feedlot very long. It's fatty, grain-fed uh, uh, beef. Um, and they found that the inflammatory response was a bit better after eating the kangaroo meat compared to the wagyu beef. Uh, now, mind you, this was a single meal, so it's hard to say if, you know, if you do this for 10 years, does this have an appreciable effect on your health? Perhaps. But even so, there's been really a lack of long-term studies. There's another study that studied pecorino cheese, which is from sheep grazing these phytochemically rich mountain pastures in Sardinia. And they compared that to more of a, a, a controlled cheese, which was animals on, on, on uh, mixed rations, uh, so on, on, on feed. And what they found was is also that the inflammatory response was better. Uh, it had a uh, comparatively anti-inflammatory response when people ate the pecorino cheese from the diverse mountain pastures with sheep, with sheep grazing that. Um, there has been one study on grain fat versus grass fat beef, but... I'd say the, the grain-fed beef was definitely better than your average feedlot beef. It was a high oleic uh, uh, beef. Um, there's also, it's hard to gather from the study what exactly, if the animals were on a, on a biodiverse pasture, it doesn't appear that it was. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> this is about the strong, and then we have some pork, some work on pork that is, uh, uh, was, was uh, this is feedlot pork, but that was provided with flaxseed which is rich in omega-3s. And when people consume that pork for six to eight weeks, they also had some markers of, of uh, inflammation that were lower. But, you know, the, it's just a handful of studies. Uh, and um, most of them were not, uh, yeah, really linking this back to the pasture or right? providing a lot of information on the pasture. So it's really hard to say at this point whether... Uh, Grass-fed beef or, or pasture-raised chicken or eggs has an, uh, an appreciable effect on our, on our health simply because we have a lack of studies. There are some studies that suggest that it may, but it's not strong enough to really say, okay, this has an effect on our health. Fair. I think that's fair. Um, as you have traveled the country and I guess the world and seeing different farms and, and experiences, what stands out? What's kind of your favorite memories of going out and seeing uh, how our food's produced? Yeah, I always enjoy visiting with farmers. Those are the best days if I'm out of uh, out of the lab and, uh, you know, you're, you're connected to the land. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, a recent occasion. I visited one of the Turner ranches uh, that, that we're doing research with, uh, the Flying D Ranch up in uh, up in Montana. And and the common narrative often that you hear is, is that livestock is displacing wildlife and it cannot coexist, right? Agriculture should be separated from nature, which I think is very weird because humans are part of nature and we should integrate this. And, and but this is a whole deeper discussion. But we 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 got quite a treat when we were there. So we drove uh, uh, through the lands. Um, the Turner Ranch have about a herd, I think, of uh, four thousand bison on that ranch. So we drove through the bison herd. We saw the bison. Um, we look back up on the ridge and we see a couple of thousand elk. Um, 
look in front of us, we see a bear munching on a bison carcass with two wolves trying to get a piece of it and the bison herd split. Um, and when I asked the ranch manager about this, he actually said, no, we, we welcome the wildlife because it's kind of, they clean up the herd, if that makes sense. The weak animals uh, or the calves that do, cannot fend for themselves, they are the ones being being consumed. So the sick or weak animals are, are being consumed. So it's actually a great way for us of, of kind of uh, uh, supporting wildlife, which is one of the reasons why Ted Turner started the bison ranches. So the bison were really used as a tool to uh, uh, establish native ecosystems. Um, so, but this was a great uh, sort of experience seeing that, you know, I saw in my own eyes, the integration of wildlife with uh, uh, food production, in this case being bison. Now, if I go back to my office and I start reading systematic reviews, I read that this is not possible or not the case in many cases. And I do want to highlight that, yes, here out west, we have displaced wildlife. Uh, you know, we've uh, a lot of cattle, wildlife wasn't really, you know, wolves were not something we wanted, uh, uh, or big cats, obviously, uh, which now almost completely, uh, uh, you know, which we would have, we have back in the day. I'm, I'm reading a book right now from Dan Flores. It's called, uh, uh, a wild new world and it talks about like the, the sort of the, the fauna the megafauna that we had in the in the u.s here in, in the past with big cats camels elephants right a lot of grizzly bears things we don't think of and uh, it's, it's really is a tale of uh, of, of humans exploiting uh, resources and over hunting it but but the short end of it is, is that if we can find a balance between uh, food production and uh, natural ecosystems I think we're, we're, we're doing a great job. And this was really something that I've seen. And it's something I've seen in the past too, or up in Idaho, I was at Alder Spring Ranch uh, two years ago. And uh, the same thing here, it's like he's grazing his cattle through uh, uh, these mountain pastures, uh, but there are beavers that have returned. Um, there's wolves, uh, there is, there's elk there. So it is just finding a balance between food production and nature. I, I I love that. Um, I've not read the book you just referenced, but the American Serengeti was a, a really interesting book that's that was along those lines. And I, I didn't realize there was a lot of the animals uh, here that that lived lived here. What what do you eat? What how do you source? What give, give me a little bit into the kind of the behind the scenes. I know that not necessarily maybe it's not scientifically proven or yeah. or, or whatever, but it's like what I th you have a feeling, right? Like this is this is what we we practice. What how do you source your food? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I'm human too, right? So and to to, to back up a little bit, a lot of the reason why we're studying these things is mainly because I'm just interested for myself as well and for my family, right? So, um, and if I find, if we find that uh, pasture raised dairy or meat contains more omega-3s, yeah, I'm more inclined to eat that, of course. I mean, that's that's only human. So yeah, I do eat a, a diet that is very rich in, in uh, whole foods. So that's also another thing, it's very low in ultra processed foods. Um, mainly my, my meals are kind of basic, it's usually, uh, a good amount of vegetables in every meal. Um, and then with either a piece of meat, fish, uh, I drink a good amount of, of milk 
uh, consume a good amount of yogurt and cheese. I'm Dutch. We're a dairy consuming population. But yeah, I mean, the, what I consume comes from pastured animals, for sure. I mean, we have a dairy just uh, uh, 20 minutes up the road. So I always get my milk fresh from the dairy there. And it's, you know, it's very tasty milk. Uh, it comes from, well, at the moment they're on feed because uh, uh, as you can see behind me, there's not much to graze at the moment. It's full of snow. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. But it's always interesting because... I research a lot of meat and milk. So people think I'm um, maybe on like a carnivore diet or really consume a lot of meat. Uh, but it's not the case. I would say that probably 70% of my uh, calories come from, from uh, uh, plant sources. But most of what I buy, I mean, I, I have produce share uh, with our local CSA. So I, and I buy my fruits and vegetables on the farmer's market when they're in season. Um, try to consume a lot of organic produce. Um, get my meat and milk and eggs from typically local farmers uh, that are pasture raised. So I do, uh, yeah, eat in uh, in uh, in such a way as well. Too cool. I, just as as you get into all this, there's all the uh, the dogma and the everybody trying to prove themselves right instead of trying to just find the truth and, and just what works and, and know that maybe it's a little different situation based off of something like Jack Cruz will say in latitude and sunlight, right. Or, so, yeah. or, you know, Anthony Chafee with, with carnivore versus the, you know, plant, uh, you know, toxins. So I, I just appreciate how you come at it, uh, open and you're not ever trying to, you know, put, it you know your your stamp and there's no ego there it's like hey what we just figure out what's what's the truth so i love that and appreciate that yeah thanks so much i appreciate that yeah and, and it's usually it is in the middle right like sometimes people have it like all plants are toxic or plants provide toxins well that, that's not the case i mean plants provide uh, high amounts of, of phytochemicals so if you're interested in phytochemicals yeah you should probably be consuming berries you should be consuming a bunch of uh uh dark green leafy vegetables, uh, beets, uh, carrots, uh, you name it, right? Um, so I definitely think that uh, that is very important. Like myself, for instance, I consume about three pounds of vegetables a day and, and a pound of fruit. So it's, it's a very high amount. It's, it's you know, and that, that this works for me. I also work out, so I have a, a little bit more of a higher caloric need, I should say. Um, but at the same time, I'm also not afraid to consume meat, milk, and eggs, despite what many uh, epidemiological studies would suggest. And, and here's the interesting part, though, and it's important nuance. And this is what studies suggest, especially on, on Mediterranean diets or other, uh, maybe a bold diet or a mind diet or, or a traditional Nordic diet. What do all these diets have in common? They are whole foods based. They provide, they con people consume animal sourced foods, but they also co-consume this with a bunch of uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. And it does seem, let's say for instance, the Mediterranean diet, right? If we consume lamb and, and, and cheese, uh, but it is probably consumed with a bunch of fresh greens, olives, a bunch of other fresh uh, uh, produce. And what some studies would suggest is, is that, you know, there's some concern about heterocyclic amines or other uh potentially quote-unquote carcinogenic compounds that are formed in meat. Well, what appears to be the case that if you marinate your meat or you consume it with herbs and spices, that a lot of these uh, quote-unquote carcinogenic compounds are very much reduced. 
So it seems there that you can maybe get the good of meat without per se getting the, the, the quote unquote bad. This is also a more nuanced discussion, I must admit, because it is hard to say whether these amounts are high enough for us to, to, to uh, be truly carcinogenic. The diet quality piece is so important. Consuming uh, your hamburgers through a fast food outlet or consuming a, a ground beef patty uh, as part of a, with, with a, a salad rich in beets and, and, and greens and olives is way different, right, than eating it with French fries and Coke. So, uh, so what so that's is your take? Uh, that makes perfect sense. It, it really does. Uh, what is your take on the um, the oxalates and the phytates? And and then do you do you have a hierarchy of the plants uh, that you eat the the fruits and vegetables? Yeah, but I'm also not worried too much about the oxalates. It's like it's always it's, it's like the extreme scenarios. These things become an issue, right? If you uh, throw a handful of spinach and, and drink it as a raw smoothie every morning and do so for a year, then yeah, the oxalates could be a problem. If uh, I fry up some eggs in the morning and I throw a handful of spinach in it and I cook the spinach, then uh, the oxalates are probably not a major problem, right? Um, so it's always sort of thinking in these extremes, right? And, or if I were to consume spinach every day raw, then yeah, maybe it could be an issue. But eating spinach a few times a week uh, is, I certainly think, very healthy for you because, speaking of which, the foods that we test that are super high in these phytochemicals are dark green leafy vegetables and berries and uh, foods such as that. So, um, yeah, I do not do not shy away from it. And I think one of the easiest way around this is, is just to not get bogged down in a diverse diet, right? I also consume irregular, which is maybe a little bit lower in oxalates, or I consume some kale, and I consume just a wide variety of foods. Um, but if I were to consume, yeah, a bunch of raw almonds every day and a bunch of raw spinach, then yeah, maybe it could be an issue, but it doesn't make spinach or almonds unhealthy just because they contain oxalates. I've got um, Bob Bob Jones with uh, Chef's Garden coming up, and and I have been absolutely blown away with a farm that puts that much interest into the the biodynamics, the nutrient density of food. And so, what what is your take on on that? It could just shift gears a little bit from the the animal based versus the way our plants are raised because that may be as important of a topic as the same thing we're saying about the, the animals. Yeah. The issue is, I think is that we are raising our plants, our fruits and vegetables in many cases, in the same way as we raise our animals in monocultures. And I think that's the issue. We talk about the, the issue of monocultures. Typically it's a, uh, a row crop of a, of a single uh, vegetable, right? Um, that requires a lot of external inputs, synthetic fertilizer, herbicides to grow. But, you know, if you look at sort of natural ecosystems, there's rarely one plant. If you walk out, you see a wide variety of plants. And what the research would suggest, and this is especially from, from, from soil science clear, is, is that um, multi-cropping has benefits for soil health. Um, various studies have suggested that. And what we're starting to find now too is that multi-cropping growing multiple crops together also likely improves the health of the plant and uh 
a healthier plant is a more nutritious plant for us as well. So we see that the multi-cropping has a, has a benefit there too. Coming back to sort of analogous to the animal, when the animal uh, is consuming a phytochemically rich diet in multiple plants, we see a healthier animal. While we also see that if uh, complementary plants are grown together or raised with cover crops, you see that soil health improves and you can see that uh, uh, there's more phytochemicals in the plant too. Um, so I think we we struggle from the same issue in, 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 in with uh, you know single species of animals raised in in confinement and then here sort of single species of plants raised in monocultures which in both cases uh, I believe is not yielding the most nutritious foods. Well, thank you. I, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this getting to to hear your perspective and work because I like y'all have definitely been putting in the work. And so, where where can we continue to learn for what y'all put out and find uh, you know this this information? When we uh, publish our studies, uh, typically uh, put them on uh, on Twitter or X now, I should say. Um, so that's that's a good outlet. I kind of still like to say Twitter, but uh, um, and then. Um, my Google Scholar profile is trying to make everything open access. And then I, I try to participate in a lot of uh, also, you know, I have to balance it with my work, obviously, and doing actual research, but uh, provide presentations, uh, YouTube, um, speak at conferences, uh, podcasts. So <clears throat> these are ways that uh, we try to get our uh, work out to, uh, to a broader audience rather than uh, just the scientific community and, and where you you know, maybe a hundred of my colleagues read the paper, but it doesn't really get to the, yeah, to the masses. So we try to, uh, within our lab, we try to participate a lot also in, uh, yeah, sort of, uh, um, things such as that. These are, these are great opportunities for us to, uh, to showcase the work and then get our work out to a broader audience. I love it. Well, thank you, my friend. Appreciate you taking the time uh, to to visit with us and share. Uh, definitely have a lot lot more to try to figure out, and um, and we'll uh, we'll keep trying to support you any way we can. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for for having me and and and.